0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at CatholicThinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. For many people, the father of modern analysis or analytic philosophy is G. E. Moore a philosopher at Cambridge around the turn of the century. He was born in 1873, lived to 1958, and Moore was at Cambridge, a student at Cambridge, at a time when philosophy was dominated then by British discovery of German idealism in the form of Hegel's philosophy. Um, Hegel had a vast metaphysical synthesis that included, it was a theory of everything, it was comprehensive, it was intriguing to many people, it seemed anyway to some to overcome some of Kant's questions about how do we understand the nature of ultimate reality if there's a break between our mind and the things out there Um, Hegel's solution was all there is is mind there's one mind in fact the absolute spirit the absolute mind and um, everything is a feature in some way or other of this mind and its consciousness the unfolding of its consciousness The philosopher J.E. McTaggart at Cambridge and F.H. Bradley at at Oxford were the vanguard of British idealism, uh, but its ripple effects extended to the University of California by way of Josiah Royce. It's important to bear in mind, I think, that Hegel's philosophy was more than just a comprehensive worldview, such as that put forward by Aristotle in his day and Thomas Aquinas in his. Hegel's system denied the common sense view of reality, The common sense view of history, the common sense view of human nature, proposing a view in which reality is just this one organically related whole that's gradually becoming aware of itself and of the necessary interrelations of its concepts as it sees these unfolding in historical events where this unfolding is also taking place by absolute necessity. Now this awkward clash between Hegel's theory and the view of ordinary people was finessed by making a distinction between appearance and reality. The world of appearance, uh, the world as it appears, at least to the philosophically unwashed, seems to be filled with material objects, individual objects, Uh, with distinct individuals of many kinds. It seems to allow for contingency, for things that don't have to be the way they are. It seems to allow for free will and personal choice and so on. But according to Hegel, the world of reality, that is the way things really are, is very different, indeed, from the way they appear to us. As we've seen, it's a world in which there's only one being, not many beings, in which everything takes place by absolute necessity. Space is unreal on this view. There's only a mental reality, a mind. Time is also unreal on Hegel's view. It's an illusion. A change within any part of this is going to affect a change everywhere. There are no loose cogs in Hegel's system, so to speak. There's there's nothing that's unaccounted for, no extra pieces left over, and so on. Now, at first, Moore, as a student, found this Hegelian system very intriguing. But his romance with idealism was short-lived. He began to challenge some of the grand claims of his teacher, J.E. McTaggart. For instance, the claim that time is unreal. Moore would ask, well, does that mean I didn't have breakfast before lunch and lunch before dinner then? And in a way, I think this kind of stopped some of of the Hegelian professors. I mean, they were used to thinking in generalities and big claims, like there's really time is not the process of events. Unfolding and so forth is a logical process um, time itself isn't real and so forth and so then to be asked this kind of Everyday question sometimes really stump them So more generally I think more begin to be known as the class gadfly always asking for clear explanation of inflated or obscure or counterintuitive claims The economist John Maynard Keynes, a friend of Moore, an undergraduate at Trinity in 1903 when Moore was himself a young fellow there, tells of how he became enamored of Moore's method. According to which, Keynes says, you could hope to make essentially vague notions clear by using precise language about them and asking exact questions. It was a method of discovery by the instrument of impeccable grammar and an unambiguous dictionary. What exactly do you mean? Was the phrase most frequently on our lips. If it appeared under cross-examination that you did not mean exactly anything, you lay under a strong suspicion of meaning nothing whatever. So this was his account of Moore's method of discovery by the instrument he says of impeccable grammar in an unambiguous dictionary. Moore's idea was maybe we should just take the claims of common sense at face value. Uh, Bertrand Russell, who was a classmate of Moore's, uh, writes in his autobiography, Moore took the lead in rebellion, and I followed, with a sense of emancipation. Bradley argued that everything common sense believes in is mere appearance. We reverted to the opposite extreme, and thought that everything is real, that common sense, uninfluenced by philosophy or theology, supposes real. With a sense of escaping from prison, we allowed ourselves to think that grass is green, that the sun and stars would exist if no one were aware of them and so forth. So Russell calls this kind of sense of freedom and liberation from what was definitely a stretch of the mind, constantly trying to renounce the realm of appearance and the way things seem to be and instead think of them the way Hegel says that they are. He says we just allowed ourselves to think that the grass is green. One thing I want to draw attention to though in this um, quote from Russell is it's not just that he wanted to go back to common sense uninfluenced by philosophy, and by that he means he- Hegel's philosophy, but uninfluenced by theology as well. That is, you already see here this kind of incipient assumption that it's in the natural sciences where we find out what's there, and that theology and religious belief and so forth is a kind of area of superstition, of irrationality and so forth that doesn't officially belong to common sense belief. So it's not as though Russell himself somehow took a poll of people in the street to see who believes in God. He just decided that we weren't going to pay any attention to what the theologians are saying. Russell had himself abandoned his faith at a young age, faith he was raised in, and had decided there was nothing to it and he maintained that belief throughout his his life. He lived to be almost 100, never changed his mind about that one. Now Moore then, uh, we'll get to Russell later, but Moore decided to turn to a different method, the method of analysis that came to be known as a a way of proceeding in philosophy that was very different from Hegelian philosophy. So he goes back to this earlier tradition, earlier British tradition really, of analyzing complex wholes into their simpler parts in order to understand them better. Right, as the term analysis suggests. For instance, John Locke had resolved to explain complex ideas by revealing the simple ideas that make them up. That was his proposal. We can get clear about all of our ideas by seeing which, if they're complex ones, we can see what are the simple ideas that go into them, and then we get down to the simple ones, we trace them to experiences. And Moore claimed in 1899, A thing becomes intelligible first when it is analyzed into its constituent concepts. Very Lockean sentiment. So then we have to decide, well, what are the simple concepts then? What are the starting points for this? Uh, What is the given that we're gonna begin from? And Moore's view was that what we really perceive, what we're really directly aware of in our experience, he's an empiricist, of course, he's gonna start with something empirical, something that is uh, accessible to the senses. This was a British tradition for many centuries, in fact, and Moore doesn't depart from that. But he decides that the immediate objects of perception are not the external objects themselves, but images of them, sense data, as they came to be called. These are what we are conscious of when we claim to see a giraffe, for instance. We don't see the giraffe herself, but we see a patch of a certain color and shape and so forth that we associate with giraffes. And the most simple kind of sense data are going to be things like the sensation of yellow because yellow, the sensation of yellow can't really be analyzed further into something simple. It can't be further defined. You can only know what yellow is by direct acquaintance. So if somebody doesn't understand the meaning of a term, in fact when you're teaching children the language, you teach them color terms, basic color terms, just by pointing. Oh yeah, the ball is yellow or the umbrella is yellow and this is red and so forth and then you you hope they pick it up. Now, Obviously, if somebody can't see at all, or if they're colorblind, they won't really learn how to apply these terms, and they won't know what we're talking about when we use the term. And we can't help them, Moore would say. These are terms that you can't analyze further. They're the simples. Now, Moore also claims that when we make judgments about objects in the material world, when we talk about baseballs or giraffes, our judgments are really about the sense data the subject of those is going to be the sense data that we do immediately experience that we're immediately acquainted with so if we point out to our kids at the zoo that the giraffe has a really long tongue uh, we're not talking really about the giraffe or that or the giraffe's tongue per se Uh, we're talking about a sense datum that's associated with the giraffe now why think there are sense data at all why introduce this term well for more Um, moore had pretty much bought into this view sometimes called the picture theory of meaning that the meaning of a term is given by showing what it depicts or refers to it's a kind of mirror of something in the world so if i ask what is that blue spot that i see you know after the camera flashes in my face i see this blue spot well the blue spot isn't a physical object really but on the other hand i didn't just imagine it and so forth so more will say well you're seeing something you must be seeing a sense datum a kind of mental image of some sort is what you're immediately aware of and sometimes these are caused by or connected with material objects sometimes not now there are difficulties though with this introduction i think of sense data as the main thing that we perceive when we perceive the world for one thing i think this takes more away from common sense in a direction moving away from common sense and in fact in the direction of the kind of skepticism about the external world that both George Berkeley and David Hume, earlier modern British philosophers, had endorsed. If common sense can speak with confidence only about sense data, which seem to be private to each person and very much seem to be dependent on the mind, then how can we know the things that Moore claims everybody does know about the external world, the world outside the mind? In one of Moore's earliest essays called uh, Defense of Common Sense, Moore lists several things he's certain of, or he thinks he's certain of, and I quote him. There exists at present a living human body, which is my body. Ever since it was born, it has been at various distances from a great number of physical objects, and so on. Now, how to ground these basically fairly bold claims if what we immediately perceive are not bodies? I don't immediately perceive my body, but a sense datum of my body. Thomas Reed, who was, as we've seen, a contemporary and a critic of David Hume, had warned that the so-called theory of ideas, and he would include more sense data in that theory, the theory of ideas that what we're immediately aware of are not the things, but ideas of the things, that that necessarily is gonna lead down the path to skepticism about the external world. And so the theory of ideas should be abandoned. We should give a different account of what's going on in perception. But few have heeded his warning. Actually, I can't think of anybody in, to some extent, I think Roderick Chisholm was uh, a contemporary who's trying to work out the project of Reed, but I don't think he's faithful to Reed at this point. Now, common sense was Moore's touchstone, and um, so he returned to that frequently throughout his philosophical career, and he has the admirable quality, I think, of not allowing his own theories, including this theory about sense data, to override what he wanted to say about common sense. So later on, when more radical theorists departed from Moore and said, maybe there aren't any material objects, or maybe material objects are just sort of uh, groups, clumps of sense data, or sense data we would perceive if we were to walk into the room or something like that. By introducing these sense data as the things we're most certain about, Moore, I think, did undermine the attempt to restore confidence in our knowledge about the world outside ourselves. But he hoped to turn sense data into something objective, actually, something independent of the mind, something that sense data he wanted to claim would exist even if nobody were there to perceive them. But this just proved to be impossible. If you introduce this third element, as it were, in between ourselves and the objects, and you want to claim that somehow what we're perceiving, though, is this thing, not the object, and yet the thing would be there whether we were perceiving it or not and so forth, then it's hard to know how to cash that out. Sometimes Moore talked about the sense data as maybe surfaces, they're surfaces of the objects. But then, you know, if we're looking at different angles, from different angles at the same surface, we don't exactly have exactly the same sense datum. It's not shaped the same and so forth. Or if a colorblind person looks at it and uh, someone who's not colorblind looks at it, they get a little bit different uh, take on it and so forth. So they do seem to be relative to the person, the mind perceiving, and yet uh, Moore wanted them to have this objective component and he he was really never able to fully resolve that difficulty. So later groups of philosophers wanted to define things like the book on the table or the podium or whatever as simply they're quasi-permanent possibilities of sense data. That's what they are. They're, They're possibilities of sense data. So that's the way in which they're permanent, I suppose, is that even when nobody's perceiving them, they don't exist, but somebody could. If you were to walk in the room, you would get certain experiences, brown and so forth, in a certain shape. Moore criticized that view. He didn't want to say that material objects are just bundles of sensations because it is hardly the common sense view of things, which is what he wanted to preserve. One example Moore uh, appealed to, in fact, involved the experience of traveling in a train. Of course he says, you'll assume the train really exists independently of your perceptions of the train. Uh, Moore says, but to suppose that your carriage, your train carriage while you sit in it, really is running on wheels, or that it really is coupled to other carriages in the train or to the engine. This, the Phenomenalist view says, is a complete mistake. All you really believe in, all you can possibly know, is not that there are any wheels existing at the moment, But merely that you would in the future if you were first to apprehend certain other sense data also directly apprehend those sense data which we call the visible appearance of wheels or those which you would feel if you did that which we call touching them and so forth but now i ask is this in fact what you believe when you believe you are traveling in a train do you not in fact believe there really are wheels on which your carriage is running at this moment So in a way, it's sort of refreshing. It's an impressive feature, I think, of Moore's own work in philosophy that he refused to surrender the claims of common sense just in order to save his own philosophical theories. In defense of this stubbornness, he would claim that any attempt to overthrow the claims of common sense is going to be less convincing than the claims of common sense themselves. Like Thomas Reed, Moore was concerned that removing philosophy too far from common sense it to common sense would expose philosophy to ridicule and render it irrelevant for most people. But Moore's commitment to realism and common sense was not shared by others. Indeed, I think many of them found the common sense view of things to be hopelessly naive, given the scientific picture of the world as atoms interacting in largely empty space. As those who were much more enamored of what's going on in the natural sciences, especially in physics, were inclined already. To have a lot of contempt for the common sense picture of things. Maybe at one time the common sense view was that the world was flat, it looks flat, It turns out not to be flat, or that the earth is at the center of the universe and it turns out not to be and so on. Or uh, more recently, given atomic theory, the common sense view is that there isn't any empty space in the podium, that it's composed of a completely continuous stuff. But the physicist's view would tell us it's mostly empty space. There are molecules that lock together in various ways so that it doesn't fall apart, and we can't put our hand through it. But nevertheless, it's composed largely of empty space, and that's hardly the common sense view and so forth. So many philosophers were much more willing to depart from common sense or to, they didn't feel any constraint on them to somehow accommodate the view of the world that we find in ordinary life. More, when he turned to study of ethics, and I, I don't wanna spend much time on this because um, there, there'll be another course on the history of modern moral philosophy in which I'm sure be presented in much more detail. But um, here again, Moore was kind of distinctive, I think, in his approach. He wanted to capture the fact that common sense seems to make claims that are perfectly straightforward, like giving blood is a good thing to do, taking other people's stuff is wrong, and so forth. So he decided, well, Now what are these based in? They're based in a recognition that some things are good and other things aren't. So some things have this property of being good. And what is this property of being good? And Moore decided it wasn't really an empirical property. Like we couldn't pick it up with our five senses. We couldn't say that giving blood is just as we see people going in to give blood we can't just sort of detect anything empirically about that that would tell us it's a good thing to do. And his idea was but clearly you know it is a good thing to do and we know that pleasure is good We know that knowledge is good. And how do we know this if it doesn't have any sort of empirical basis? So Moore decided, well, we must just be able to recognize it in some other way, not through our five senses. Goodness, he thought, must be a non-natural quality of some things. It wasn't an empirical property, but it was a property. And so it must be a non-empirical or a non-natural property of certain things and that the mind has just grasped it immediately or intuitively. And so this kind of intuitionist form of ethics had some influence for a while anyway in um, 20th century ethical theory developed by other thinkers in various directions for Moore himself once he decided that for instance pleasure is good then he moved on to just attempting to see in a kind of utilitarian way which things promote the greatest pleasure for the greatest number but the initial grasp of pleasure is good he thought was was just an intuitive grasp and goodness itself he thought couldn't be analyzed further it was like yellow I mean, some colors, of course, are two other colors combined, but he thought that goodness wasn't like that, that you just have to be able to see that pleasure is good. If you don't, there's nothing we could do for you. One thing that I think is sort of refreshing about Moore is just his honesty as a philosopher. His autobiography, Moore tells us he continues to be interested, at the point he writes anyway, in two sorts of philosophical problems. He says, first, The problem of trying to get really clear as to what on earth a given philosopher meant by something which he said. And secondly, the problem of discovering what really satisfactory reasons there are for supposing that what he meant was true, or alternatively, false. I think I've been trying to solve problems of this sort all my life, and I certainly have not been nearly so successful in solving them as I should have liked to be. So that is Moore's own assessment of his efforts in philosophy. It's probably uh, overly modest. Given the amount of influence he's had on later philosophical efforts, especially on uh, his contemporary Bertrand Russell, who, as we'll see, departed quite a bit from some of the concerns that animated Russell. But I think one of the things that you might say has lasted the longest, or has had the longest play, maybe, in 20th century and into the 21st century in philosophy, is seeing philosophy more or less as Moore sees it here in his summing up his efforts. He says. First, trying to get really clear as to what a given philosopher meant by something he said. It is trying to get clear on what exactly we mean when we talk about something like thought or belief or knowledge or willing, choosing and so forth. Trying to get very clear about that. Secondly, he says discovering whether there are good reasons for supposing that it's true. What the person said was true. In other words, Moore's is looking for truth. He's still a realist to the end. He wants to know the truth about things. And he thinks that reason can arrive at the truth. So if we see what the reasons are for and against a certain position and so forth, we will know whether we should accept it or not. Uh, So he tries to be uh, intellectually, I think, very honest about that. Maybe it's one reason why he never was satisfied with any of his theories about sense data. He couldn't see how to give them up on the one hand. On the other hand, he couldn't see how to make them as objective as he wanted to make them on the other hand. And he just sort of held that in suspension in a way maybe hoping others would find ways of resolving it that he wasn't able to. His colleague Bertrand Russell, as we'll see, took a very different direction into the beginnings of logical atomism or what I have called the search for the perfect language and in part I think that was because Russell, as he says himself, was very much animated by a search for certitude. He wanted absolute certainty. He did not want any possibility of error. It's one of those interesting Parting the ways, maybe, or personality differences in philosophy that some philosophers believe you have to have absolute certainty or you've got nothing. You risk falling into error. Other philosophers think that having sufficient grounds for what we think is good enough. That we will be able to, there's a kind of confidence there. We'll be able, if we go off somewhere, off the track of truth, it'll be self correcting. We'll be able to fix it and get ourselves back on the track and by and large, you know, we're probably going to know what's true. Starting with Descartes, I think there came to be a real concern about that. Descartes himself says that beginning of his meditations that he began to question that he found that as he was growing up anyways, he got older that many of the things he used to believe weren't true at all. And you think well, just what were those things? I mean, you believed in giraffes and now you find there aren't any or you know, what how could you have gone wrong about that many important beliefs but Descartes thinks he did and that he has to avoid that at any cost right? you have to build knowledge on this absolutely certain foundation and in that respect I think we'll find that Bertrand Russell and many others in that in the uh, Vienna circle later in logical positivism were animated by that same desire that philosophy has to be founded in absolute certainty uh, we can't settle for anything less we hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic thinkers Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.